the thing that this book to me, what it taught me was how to interpret narrative, how to understand it mm. and how to understand how to apply it to my own life where I could see what are the things that I'm doing? What is my pattern of behavior? How does that map onto archetypal narrative? Mm. And I could either, with that information, I could choose to think I know better than the collective understanding mm. of all of my human ancestors, mm. or I could listen to that and understand that maybe I'm doing something in a pattern. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Luke DeWolf, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Great to have you here. Um, we're going to be talking about a very important book today. Uh, the first book by Jordan B. Peterson titled Maps of Meaning. Uh, I know this is a book we've both read and we're both big fans of, and it is extremely long and dense. So this is going to be uh, an extended conversation. And today we'll just kind of have a general intro. And speaking of intros, by way of quick introduction for you, you are the co-host of the Freedom Footprint show with Knut Svonholm. Um, and yeah, so I guess before we get into the book, we should talk a little bit about you. Like, what is, 
who are you, Luke? What is your backstory? Your pathway into Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning, and then how Maps of Meaning actually took you into Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. So as you say, super important book to me personally, definitely right there in the path to Bitcoin. So yeah, I'll start with with me. I'm from Canada, but part of my, uh, anyone who knows me already in the Bitcoin community probably knows me as Pseudofin. I moved from Canada to Finland in the, the last couple of years here. And sure. that's sort of an interesting choice. Uh, big motivation for that being the Canadian climate of the last few years, not to <laughs> really put too fine a point on that, but Canada started to, uh, I started to have some issues with with what was going on in, in Canada and I got an opportunity to move and Finland ended up uh, being it, ended up being a great choice. But to pull back just a little bit uh, into when I was first getting into my career in Alberta, Canada, which is where Jordan Peterson is, is from, it's the oil capital of Canada and really oh. where all of the energy and most of the finances come from Canada. There there are some who might dispute that, that the financial industry in Canada is uh, from, from Toronto is more important, but but really it's oil. Oil country in Alberta is the heart of the economy of Canada. That's just Man. period. The Canadian economy does very well when oil is doing well. And it does very poorly when oil is doing poorly. It's a it's a commodity attached country, uh. and to make it worse, it's a regional a regional thing. So, the oil and gas situation in Canada is against all of the climate initiatives from a certain Justin Trudeau, uh. and basically, it was a perfect storm around the 2016 time when when oil was not doing well as a commodity and there were a lot of barriers being put in place on the Canadian side and basically what happened was Alberta had a really really bad recession so this was local this was regional and it was when I was just starting my career I was really quite lost I didn't know what to do in hindsight this is a huge huge part of what primed me for Bitcoin generally mm -hmm. was just seeing how the economy and the, the government all work together but and are influenced by each other. And the, the, the people who kind of make the economy work really get crushed by the, the policies of, of central government. So that, that kind of primed me in hindsight, but it wasn't something I was thinking about back then. Yeah. Where I did go and what I was looking for was some form of meaning. Not to get too deep into my religious background, I, I was Christian on and off for a while. And for various reasons, I was mostly not into it uh, right around this period of time. And I was searching for something different. Yeah. And the main thing was, is I was at a big risk of just rejecting all kind of meaning and structure, which I, which I think you might uh, see as a, as a, as a theme for where maps of meaning might fit in. So I found along with a, a good friend of mine who, who 
helped me along this this journey. Shout out to Dan Larrabee. Uh, we found Jordan Peterson together. He was a controversial figure around this time in Canada. Uh, he was he was coming out against um, compelled speech was yeah. essentially the the thing. The, this was what he was against. There are people who would claim that politically he is anti-trans. The the thing he he would ref- refuse to do essentially was to use to be forced to use people's pronouns that he did not agree with yeah. and it was the compelled speech it was coming from a bill in the canadian parliament to force the speech and his entire body of work his entire life's work was about what's wrong with that uh-huh. his entire motivation for for getting into this field was was wanting to understand the atrocities of the 20th century the the absolutely terrible things that were done by the nazis by the communists by ideology uh-huh. essentially so this all leads to he had a great series of lectures on youtube about his book maps of meaning and a part uh, something you, you mentioned was that this book is incredibly dense yes it's nearly 500 pages and it's written in well some some of the most difficult language to read period but the best thing i think he did was was distill it into about uh, was it 10 12 hour long lectures uh-huh. that he presented at the university of toronto and it was just in a little period of time where he was actually able to to produce a version of of maps of meaning uh, with decent production value before he he left the University of Toronto because people were were hostile to him so so there's a great a great version of these these um YouTube lectures and and th- this is what what I found and uh, my friend Dan and I we we decided to to go through these lectures as if we were taking his class and uh-huh. talk about them and see what we could learn from them we, we aimed for an episode uh, a week, a lecture a week. Fast forward to the end of that weekend, and I was through the whole thing. So <laughs> something stuck. Exactly. Exactly. Something stuck. And really, the, the, the point from this phase of my life was I was absolutely primed to be looking for something to fill the void of meaning, which no. Maps of Meaning, as the book indicates, explains how we as people find meaning in the world and to me that is what the book does in a in a nutshell and hopefully we can start to unpack that uh that's an excellent introduction um and thank you for weaving in like the your personal story I, i think it really sets the frame for the rest of our conversation um so you the you discovered the maps of meaning lectures intending to go through them systematically over a course of weeks so it sounds like you did them all in a weekend um how many hours of lectures is that oh i, I mean it's gotta be 10 12 hours something like that yeah absolutely yeah. binged it there might be, yeah. it might be longer but uh yeah yeah and so i looked at everything else on his channel too there, there was another lecture series and they were from previous years and stuff over the course of a few weeks really i binged everything that i could find uh, from him so yeah. and what year was this i Belito's 2016. I, I could actually, I could actually quickly confirm 2016. that. 2016. Okay, so you, be you, you discovered him a bit earlier than I. 
Um, I think I initially encountered his body of work in 2018. It was actually through Bitcoin. I knew people that were reading his book, 12 Rules for Life. I believe that's the book they were reading at the time. And a few people had mentioned him to me. And then one person in, in, in one person individually that I knew in Los Angeles said, listen, 12 Rules for Life is great, but you have to go back to his earliest stuff. Go back to his initial lectures, go back to his first book. Like That's where his real, that's the real gold mine of his work is there. The stuff you're seeing now in 12 Rules for Life is kind of like the pop mainstream version of this deeper, more thorough work, let's say. And so I took that advice and grabbed Maps of Meaning. And I also went back to the beginning of his lecture series, not starting with the Maps of Meaning lectures, but with the biblical series. He did the Psychological Significance of the Bible lecture series. And wow, right? Just wow. I think I've listened wow. to, to all of that lecture series plus Maps of Meaning uh, lecture series, which is, I don't know, 40, 50 hours of content probably. And I'm not an audio guy typically, but I've listened to them all three times. You know, like I just can't get enough. I've read this book once, Maps of Meaning, uh, very slowly, <laughs> very thoughtfully, uh, many highlights, many notes. Uh, I have it pulled up in front of me here. So uh, this book, again, this is one of these words, right? Meaning, we throw this word around, like, you know, what does it mean What's the meaning of this? Uh, what's the meaning of life is a big question, like if not the biggest question that um, philosophers ponder. And I I think this book does an excellent job of really dissecting what what that means, right? What is the meaning of meaning itself? And he goes into um, <clears throat> this confluence of psychology and mythology and complex systems at times and just sort of looking at it um looking at the way we generate meaning and all of the different meanings of that word and it, and I'm you're left with a very I mean I left the book with a very shifted worldview or enriched worldview and um I think we could start really with the first line the first sentence of the book and it Maybe one other thing I should mention here. Peterson himself said he wrote this book over a 15-year period, I believe. He said he worked on it three hours a day, every day, for 15 years straight. And he said he rewrote each sentence an average of 50, five zero times. So he was, I mean, one of the most, who knows how true or like he's just sort of averaging, I don't know. But when you read the text, I believe him. Like it is extremely dense. It's extremely thoughtful. The context is um, very well thought through. The arrangement, etc. Not an easy read. Definitely feels like one of those books that um, you actually feel your neural architecture being restructured as you're reading it. It's uh, almost like a painful experience, but. I, I mean, I like books like that. I don't, maybe there's a few of us in the world that do. Um, and for those that might not want to read a book that painful, hopefully this conversation will help. So with all of that said, the first sentence in the book, chapter one, 
titled Maps of Experience, subtitle Object and Meaning, Peterson writes, the world can validly, can be validly construed as forum for action or as place of things. Let me read that one more time since I messed up. The world can be validly construed as forum for action or as place of things. Now, and I get this from Peterson as well, a more poetic, perhaps, interpretation of this first line is that in the world, you could construe the world as something that is made of matter or as something that is made of what matters. And without knowing it, now Peterson doesn't go into praxeology and economics and this whole domain of human action that uh, Mises talks about, but obviously the word action is in this first line. He's sort of opening this gateway out of the materialist worldview into the sphere of human action, right? Where we have purposes and cross purposes and um, scarcity, like all of these things that uh, that we get from the work of Mises and Rothbard and others. And in doing so, I think at least awakening someone that might be traditionally a materialist, myself included, who was sort of come up, I came up in the school of, you know, astrophysics, space and time, quantum mechanics, like fundamental particles. There's, it's all reducible to some material physical structure. And he's basically opening this window to this other side that, no, there's this whole realm of relevance and purpose and interpretation and symbol. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on the first line. I would humbly throw it over to you to hear what you have to say about that. Absolutely. And what a first line. Exactly. And the best part about that first line is it really is a TLDR on the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so masterfully done by, by Dr. Peterson there. And just to add a couple of things, there is, is so much to unpack with this division of the the world as a place of things versus a place of action. It's it's the empirical versus the experienced. And in a lot of senses, it's the the a priori versus the a posteriori. <laughs> right. The 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 term a priori, I, I realized this when when I was going back back through uh to prepare for 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 this conversation. The the term a priori is in the index about fit for about 15 times. And it's a, it's a word that he used constantly in, in the, the lecture series. And the thing about that is a priori is, is the building, building things, building things up from their principles is the core of praxeology and human action. And so it's, it's just the funniest thing to me that they absolutely aren't related exactly, but all the same ideas are there. And so yes. that's the bridge absolutely between, between what Jordan Peterson is is thinking and doing with this book and the the thinking of the Austrian economists but there's another side to it and and it really gets into the the background of the motivation for for writing this book that, that Dr. Peterson gets gets into a little bit here he was having his own journey of of being devoid of meaning losing meaning uh-huh. Uh-huh. and the the 
the story he, he goes into it in the in the preface for this book and I, I think also a lot more in the the 12 rules series but but he he found Carl Jung which is the the bedrock of the archetypal psychology discipline which I I, I think Dr. Peterson takes to uh, a new level with but, with maps of meaning but the foundations are all there and the the quote that I'll bring from Jung unfortunately I've never actually found in which book this actually comes from but the the quote is the most important question anyone can ask is what myth am I living <clears throat> and so the thing that this book to me what it taught me was how to interpret narrative, how to understand it, but, and how to understand how to apply it to my own life, where I could see what are the things that I'm doing? What is my pattern of behavior? How does that map onto archetypal narrative? Really? And I could either, with that information, I could choose to think I know better than the collective understanding of all of my human ancestors or I could listen to that and understand that maybe I'm doing something in a pattern and knowing that maybe if there's something I don't like maybe I can change that so that was the massive massive thing that this book taught me Mm. yeah no that's really well said um If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down costs. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. To, this is a very important term, like you said, comes up many times in the book, a priori 
essentially meaning no priors, right? Without priors, like, you know, you would say, uh, symmetric versus asymmetric, right? Something is symmetric. If it's asymmetric, that means it's not symmetric. So this is a priori, no priors, without priors. Axiomatic, you might say, right? There's a fundamental, unshakable, irrefutable assumption on which we're building some uh, belief system, body of knowledge, ideology, whatever it may be. And the the second term, a, I hope I can pronounce this, a posteriori, is that pronounced correctly? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I've I've only read that word. I've never said it. It's the first time. Are those are basically the derivative, uh, uh, the theorems being deduced from those axioms, right? Something to that effect. Yeah, a posterior analysis about inductive logic. That's kind of the the uh, definition here, coming from observational evidence. Is is how I I put the difference between these two. So right. so they're deductive logic coming from definition and first principles that's a priori yes a posteriori coming from observational evidence so the the observational versus the empirical the experiential versus the empirical well there's they're so um and again it gets a little subtle here but so a priori no priors axiomatic common example i like to use euclidean geometry Two parallel lines never touch, right? It's just an assumption. We don't actually go out into the world and try to observe all the parallel lines and measure measure them to the end of each end of the universe and make sure they never touch. It's a fundamental assumption on which you build Euclidean geometry, right? In the sphere of economics, praxeology, we have axiomatic assumptions like the axiom of action, right? Man must act man must purposefully use means to pursue valued ends and to try and the reason that's an axiom is because if you try to refute it by argumentation you are employing the means of argumentation with the end of refuting the axiom of action therefore confirming the axiom of action you're using means to pursue ends right so it's very interesting whereas the a posteriori this is going to be more like empirical reality, right? We go out and every time we take water to zero degrees centigrade, it freezes. Every time, every place, everywhere we do it, as long as it, you know, the salinity and the water is correct, it always freezes. So we do that enough times and eventually we say, okay, well, we've tested it and water freezes at zero degrees. So there's these two different ways of knowing, right? There's like the the rationalistic deductive way and then there's the empirical way and um and to the point you said there with, with carl Jung's quote this the most important question we can ask ourselves what myth am i living it's what, what's he saying here is something like where does do our beliefs or our ideology how do they become action right what are, it's it's guiding yeah. our action it's 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 driving our selection of means to pursue ends is driving our selection of ends right what do we value what are we aiming our action towards and the myth or the story or the narrative uh even the identity of yourself right your name your history your background who you think you are 
this is somehow a, uh, a narrative structure that you're using to fuel the selection of means and the selection of ends for conducting human action in the world. So uh, these things are very difficult to talk about, obviously, because you're almost talking about language itself, meaning itself, thought itself, purpose, action. Um, but it's it's a sad truth in modern reality that the word myth has come to popularly be conceived as a synonym for untruth when it is quite literally the exact opposite, right? The, the story, the myth, the belief is like um, one of the most essential features of motivating you and guiding you as an acting rational being. And um, I think Peterson, again, is starting to go into that side of the world, right? It's not just billiard ball cause and effect universe that we we are reflective rational beings that can intervene into this into a otherwise cold mechanical universe and actually change it and shape it. Um, so I'd, I'd love to throw it over to you and then I, I want to talk about the meaning of meaning before we get too far because obviously that word's very important in this book. Absolutely. Well, and and to to touch on the part about myth generally, maybe this is this is a good point to to talk a little bit more about the the importance of the biblical series, the Genesis series that uh, the Dr. Peterson did, and and I completely understand why that was the uh, the hook for you because, uh, yeah, like w- when I found everything that Dr. Peterson had been doing, the the biblical series was just being produced, if I'm recalling correctly. And so so it was like in real time these the this series was coming out. It was before the Twelve Rules series and 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 everything. And and the 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 thing that transfixed me about that was I I had rejected Christianity entirely. I, I yeah. was running away from it fast and far. And the thing about it was this this series he explained what these stories mean uh-huh. and and i I was mind blown there because I, the 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 way he broke every little piece down, he spent so much time on specifically the the Cain and Abel story as uh-huh. as a prime example. There's a whole chapter in Maps of Meaning basically dedicated to that story structure, the hostile brothers. Uh-huh. And this is one of the shortest passages in, in Genesis. It's six verses or something like that. Uh-huh. And and he breaks it down over the course of an hour and uh-huh. and shows how this actually is relevant. Uh-huh. It's not just it's not just some stuff from however many thousands of years ago that's completely irrelevant today. No. It's saying something real, uh, and it's real in in the sense that it's describing something real. It's uh, it's not real in the sense of in the sense of something physical. And this uh, is again the distinction between things and actions. Uh, but it's real because it influences people's behavior and it talks about people's behavior. So that's the part that I really wanted to to uh, explore. And before I toss it back to you for the for the definition of meaning thing here. What what I ended up doing for the next couple of years after this is I tried to emulate the 
the biblical series again with my friend Dan. We we try to do our own pod. Uh, exploring Norse mythology and Finnish mythology from the same lens, and of course, we didn't do nearly as good of a job as 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 Dr. Peterson did with his biblical series. But we were trying to to do the same thing in the in the in the way of kind of mimicking to to understand if if that yeah. makes sense. And the thing about that was that was just the best thing for being able to understand this stuff by trying to break down completely unrelated or seemingly unrelated sets of of mythology myth and, the, uh-huh. and then coming to some so many of the same conclusions it sort of took the veil away that uh-huh. that these stories and these patterns are universal uh-huh. not universal in the sense that every culture is going to have a version of these stories in exactly the same way but that there's there's something about the human experience that is transmitted through these things and mm-hmm. that was really what was important to me and and that was a, an entire chapter basically of my life again all still pre-bitcoin uh, mm-hmm. where i was spending years exploring this stuff basically mm-hmm. that was that was the whole idea so mm-hmm. yeah yeah um it's strange i think when you first encounter this work it, like I remember, what is one of the first things I heard Peterson say? Um, everything's a story. What do you say? Everything's a story, or we live inside of stories, something like that. And I was like, well, of course, everything's a story. Like it's almost like a tautology. You're just saying, oh, everything is an ordered sequence of events. Just you know, you're describing an ordered sequence of events. I was like, yeah, no shit. Like, what is this guy? <laughs> but then you like, so at first you might reject it. You know, it's almost too obvious or simple. But then you have to go layers deeper and um you know okay so for me personally i like you rejected christianity i grew up southern baptist i went to church often as a child by the time i was a teenager i was very curious about the stars so i read some books on astrophysics you know stephen hawking brian green some others pretty deeply indoctrinated materialist atheist after reading a few of those books I'm like oh religion's a fairy tale that makes everyone feel good but the reality is you know this hardcore applied mathematics physics science right like that's what's real this is some stories we tell ourselves but peterson um does an excellent job of an imp- in particular in that biblical lecture series, but also in this book, in explaining the significance of the biblical stories or the biblical corpus as a whole through different scientific frameworks, through different quote-unquote objective lenses, right? You know, talk about the psychological. That's why he titled the lecture series, actually, The Psychological Significance of the Bible. Right, he's focusing on the psychological dimensions of the Bible, yeah. not throwing out. Not he's not saying this. Oh, there's no theological value here. There's no moral value, etc. But the, just focusing on the psychological aspects because he is obviously a clinical psychologist. Now that word significance is very important when we start to talk about the meaning of meaning. Right, the meaning of the word meaning itself. When we ask a question like, what is the meaning of life? 
what we are trying to say is like, what is the significance of life? What is the purpose, right? Why are we here? What, what does this all mean? You know, like, so there's, there's this one sense of the word meaning that we invoke when we ask these transcendental or profound questions, deep questions, right? Like what, what is the purpose of it? And purpose, obviously, as we, we alluded to earlier, ties in very closely to praxeology, right? It's like we're purposefully using means to pursue ends. So there's this reality of human action that's rooted in purpose. Um, but we're also asking, when we ask the biggest questions, we're also trying to figure out the purpose or the significance of the thing. So that's one sense of the word meaning. There's another sense of the word where you might hear someone say, um, you know, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to bump into you. Excuse me, I didn't mean to bump into you. All right, we're talking about uh, a divergence between intention and action or intention and behavior. You know, you, you attempted to do one thing. I tried to throw the dart and hit the middle of the dartboard, but I hit the guy's leg instead. And I said, hey, sorry, I didn't mean to hit to hit you in the leg with a dart. So there's this other meaning of meaning where we're say, talking about intention, intentionality, what we're aiming at, right? What we value, actually. And this... You know, Peterson often refers to the word sin coming from that archery term, hymartia. Am I saying that correctly? Um, Something like that. Could, could be mispronouncing it slightly, but basically the word sin is derived from this term that means to miss the mark. And so, again, it's getting back to this aiming nature of human action, right? We're always pointed at some goal. And then we're choosing which means we're using to pursue that goal. And so meaning has something to do with that, the intentionality, the setting of the aim, and the actual execution of the actions to try and move toward that aim. So that's kind of the second sense of the word meaning. And then the third sense is just um, orderly information, right? Like if I if I just show you a, a scrambled set of letters, well, you would just say, oh, this has no meaning. But then if I rearrange them into a specific sequence and it spells a word, right? It's, it says praxeology, for instance. So like, oh, that's a word, okay. Or we could say like the meaning of the word praxeology, right? What is the definition of it? Well, there's, an, there's a specific ordered set of information that defines that word, right? The scientific study of human action, perhaps, is the definition. I'm not sure that's the exact one. But there's only one sort of specific sequence. There has to be in a very specific order. Obviously, order is a big theme in this book as well that gives that term meaning. You could also think about this in like a phone number, right? If the phone number is in the right sequence, then it has meaning. It can, it can, allow you to reach the person that you're trying, that you intend to reach if it's in the right order or a tracking number for a package, right? If all the alphanumeric characters are in the right order, you can track the package. If I interpose or inter swap any two of them, um, transpose any two of them, then the, the tracking number has no meaning. It's not going to tell me anything, right? 
So there's these three, like, it's a strange word because it has to do with the the biggest, most significant questions when we say, like, what is the meaning of life? But it also has to do with our intention as we act in the world, right? What are we valuing? What are we working towards? And when we miss the mark, like we, you know, I didn't mean to do that. It was unintentional, we might say. And then the means by which we pursue these ends requires orderly information oftentimes, right? We need some map of the truth, right? Whether that's a telephone number or a good definition or a social consensus, right? There's another saying somewhere in this book or from Peterson's lectures where he says, all true maps must align. So the importance of you and I sharing the same definition of a word for us to communicate, we have to have consensus on the meaning of the term. Otherwise, we cannot communicate, right? If I'm speaking English and you're speaking Chinese, there's no consensus on meaning. We're just not going to communicate. So, um, yeah, those are the... That's how I like to lay out the meaning of meaning, and I'll throw it back over to you. But then I want to I want to talk about myths again. How you said talking about the reality of myths. Mm. Well, yeah. So so just just the instant about the the meaning thing here, and and I loved the 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 intentionality, the the sin example. That was that was another one of those things that that really changed my view on how. Christianity specifically is is oriented and and maybe in, in a point of criticality it's that if if the concept of sin was actually explained in in that way as a, as opposed to in in certain evangelical Christianity circles uh-huh. to sin means you're just going to go to hell and that's how it's explained and uh-huh. uh, well that's that's uh, not persuasive for a, a young growing mind uh-huh. but is literally true and maybe we'll we'll get to to that a little bit later how how missing the mark sends you into hell yes metaphorically uh, but but the the other thought i have just about the, the meaning generally the especially your last definition of it is it's the signal in the noise it's yeah. it's taking away all the information that doesn't matter because later. that's another in, important class of things it's there's matter and then there's what matters yes exactly so you strip away everything that doesn't matter and then you have the meaning. Yes. And so that's that's a beautiful part of the example here. So that's yeah. that's my thoughts on that. That was beautiful. And it's it's again, what matters though is relative to what your aim is. Right? Yes. It, um you know, there's a certain set of what is it, a, a latitudinal map, I forget the name of it, will will is very useful for navigating most places in the world, but if you're at the North or South Pole, you need polar coordinates instead, right? So it's the actual means that you are invoking is useful relative to your actual end, right? So there's different um, different context call for different tools, let's say. So it's it's um, it's not just to say that there's a universal set of things that matter and a universal set of things that don't matter, right? It's it's relative to you and your course of goal-directed action. Uh, what? How does Peterson describe this, right? That you have 
tools and obstacles, basically, right? There's a goal and a tool, yeah. tools yeah, anything I, that accelerates you on the course to that goal. And an obstacle is anything that impedes you on the way to that goal. And you're sort of navigating it that way. It's the, his, his terminology, I think is, is the unbearable present and the, the desired future. Something uh-huh. like that. It's, it's uh, something else in the future. It's, but it's, it's the the going between that you you have the reason you act and this is this is really yes. bringing back parallels to praxeology right yes 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 the the felt uneasiness is is how right. I've seen it in the praxeological uh, circle yep. yeah yeah mesis yep. but but then so the petersonian version is is the unbearable present so the present is unbearable you must act mm-hmm. you as an individual have to act, but what are, what are you acting towards? It's the it's the ideal future. It's yes. the ideal future. Yes. And that directs your action. So Yes. No, that's a beautiful parallel because yeah, the unbearable present meaning that you must invoke some means purposefully towards some end. You can't just sit there as an inert lump. Just as Mises says we act to reduce felt uneasiness, right? We're always, we're uneasy about the present in some way, and we're always acting towards a more idealized future, right? We have an idea of a future that's better than the present, and we're acting towards that end. Um, that's excellently said. And the point on sin, too, very useful when you consider that, okay, that's the nature of human action, right? We're always aiming at a goal, working towards it. We're missing the mark often, off like constantly, almost constantly. If you really yep. start to watch yourself, I do it all the time. Like you walk in the room and you're like, "Oh, I forgot my phone in the other room," or you go to send the email. And you're like, "Oh, I forgot to put the attachment." Like we're doing, we're making mistakes like all the time, all day. And so, if you learn, I guess if you frame it that way, that making a mistake is like sinning in the sense of missing the mark then you start to understand the value of repentance. Repentance is just like learning from your mistakes, basically. It's like, oh, I see myself doing that again. Maybe I can, you know, be humble enough to call myself on this mistake and learn from it and try to not repeat it into the future. All the while still knowing I am going to make mistakes forever into the future because I am human, fallible, etc. So it starts to like get put this um, pragmatic or secular significance to these theological concepts like about sin and you know the wages of sin are death and things like that like we're all going to die because well you know your biological machinery wears out right it makes mistakes and it misses the mark and it wears out so now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health crowd health is a bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance now let's face it legacy health insurance is an absolute scam Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. 
So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, and on myths, I again, it's it's unfortunate that that the definition of myth is considered to be synonymous with untruth because my, myths aren't real in the sense that they happened per se, right? Yes. I, lo- I love the analogy Peterson uses here. He says, myths are real like numbers are real, right? Like they're almost hyper real mm. in that you're not describing the, the myth of Cain and Abel, for instance. It's not saying there was definitely a guy named Cain and a guy named Abel and they were brothers and they were hostile and this whole um, saga unfolded. It's talking about the nature of relations between human beings like across the broadest possible scope the most generalizable expanse of human interaction right even within us right we have like kind of the hostile brother um good and evil intentionality within us at times right that um perhaps we're you know the sacrifices we're making are being honored or they're not being honored. We may feel resentment about that. We may feel violent about that. We may feel whatever hostile towards someone because they're, you know, succeeding in an area that we're not perhaps. And also between us in the same way that numbers aren't real, right? There's not like a three you can touch and be like, Oh, there's three. This is when three happened, but it's this, it's the most generalizable uh, language, right? That any any grouping of objects that are, you know, try, I don't know how the word for this, exhibit threeness, right? There are three distinct elements. Yeah. You can say there's three stars, there's three mountains, there's three waves, there's three children. Like it can apply to any category essentially. And so myths are more like that right they're 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 abstracting out all of these lessons that we've learned about ourselves across human history and compressing it into this very tight little data packet or it's a story a, a data packet a narrative and it contains so much information and it's so universally applicable um that again not real in the sense of Cain and Abel, this actually happened, but meta real or or hyper real in the way that numbers are hyper real, and they can be applied to such a broad, broad range of of human interaction, both internally and externally. Exactly, and the the thing about 
the way that myths are formed as well, because Dr. Peterson talks about this too, is likely there were some real stories in there, some real events that did happen. But what gets remembered? What gets remembered? Over time, over generations, over hundreds, thousands of years, what gets remembered? The core pieces of information that are necessary for people to remember. Uh-huh. And it's it's almost simple when you think of it like that, uh-huh. right? That that before there was the ability to save all of this information, all of this data in, well, you, you know, I, I think you're, you're talking about that you have a PDF of, of this 500 page uh-huh. book. Well, that's, that's just in your computer, right? This th- There's no such thing as scarcity of data any, anymore, at least as, uh-huh. as long as civilization continues to exist. Uh-huh. But prior to that, needed to store humans needed to store information in a way that could be passed down and understood mm-hmm. so myth myth is the vehicle mm-hmm. for that so i think i think maybe this is actually a good a good point where we can we can break down the the core features of maps of meaning the the core elements of of myth because i i think we we probably won't really have much time for much else if i'm honest yes uh, yes please and and so I, I think the the breakdown here, the real core, uh, the real core feature here in maps of meaning is order and chaos. Mm-hmm. Order is the known, uh-huh. the landscape of that which you know, and th- this this can mean exactly the the literal things that that are in your brain that you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's also the things that make sense. It's mm-hmm. the the thing you're aiming for. That's part of the known because y- you can't aim for something if you don't know it or if you don't have a conception of it. So that's mm-hmm. in the known. Then all of the things that you plan to do to get to that aim is also an element of the known. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm going to quickly reference as well that so the 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 first chapter in the maps of meaning is called object and meaning and and it's it's describing this stuff it's it's the the order and chaos i'll get to chaos uh-huh. shortly but chapter two is is about three levels of analysis and and this is where this is where the book starts to get uh dense uh, and the 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 first one is what what i want to touch on is that sort of the 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 normal life what we do day to day is uh-huh. the level of analysis that most people live in and and think in and where this entire conception makes sense mm-hmm and so the known is what you do day to day is is the the things you plan to do and that you try to execute and every time we run into obstacles we we encounter chaos uh-huh. the unknown uh-huh. that which is not known uh-huh. so the the entire book is about this interplay between order and chaos and and to bring that into real life i mean you you gave some some examples right the forgot to to bring your phone from the other room well that's an obstacle to your plan Uh that you have to overcome Uh now the the human brain and there's a there's a whole other section about the neuropsychological function the nature of the mind the neurochemistry Uh of why this is actually true but the human the human brain is adapted to deal with these these obstacles to Uh to so-called interplay 
between order and chaos right on the boundary. Uh-huh. Little little bits of chaos are easy. Uh-huh. We can handle that. The problem becomes when the chaos is massive, when you don't know what to do. When you wake up one day, and this happened to me not long ago, a lightning strike took out the metro station 200 meters away from my house. And and I didn't know this. I, I couldn't go to the store across town to pick up the thing that I, I wanted that mm-hmm. day. And I, so I decided to go the to a different store that didn't require me to go on the metro. But the thing the thing was that the whole city was locked down for, for not locked down, but that's a bad term. Mm-hmm. The, the, that metro station didn't work. And so people couldn't get to and from parts of the city. So that's a bigger part of chaos. And, mm-hmm. and Hundreds, thousands of people had to had to deal with that particular bit of chaos in their day from a freak lightning strike. There was no rain. There was no thunder. Mm-hmm. Day it was just a freak lightning strike. And so, so seriously, it's like uh, the the entire the entire thing here is is about how we deal with the interplay between order and chaos, and how myth and archetype explain in increasing levels of detail and depth mm-hmm. how how these these two things interplay and have an effect on daily life mm-hmm. yeah excellent excellently said and there's another major theme which peterson i think largely is inspired by the Taoist and the split between order and chaos, right? This is yang and yen, I think, if I'm saying that uh, respectively. I always loved the dichotomy of explored versus unexplored territory, right? The explored territory is like, it's the known. It has already been mapped, if you will. Mapped territory, you might say. And then everything outside of that sphere is unmapped territory, unexplored territory. And this can be, as you said, any number of domains, right? This could be intellectual domains. You might have a known area inside of, you might know, you know, algebra 101, but you don't know 201, 301, 401. This could be physical space. This could be social space, right? Maybe you have certain relationships, friendships within a certain circle. Beyond that circle, you do not. Um, so it's almost this universal descriptor for how we as individuals relate to the broader world. And um, I think it also ties in nicely to, you know, intention, which we said earlier is was one of the senses of the word meaning and means and ends, right? That we kind of know our intention, at least. So like you know your aim, or well, here's what I'm trying to do. Now, maybe there's some subtleties there. You might not always know exactly what you're trying to do, but hopefully in a a very dry sense, like if I'm a running back for a football team, I'm trying to get the football in the end zone, right? That's my intention. The means I'm going to run are, you know, a certain play, right? We're going to run a play. The quarterback's going to hand me the ball in a certain way, and these guys are going to block in a certain way and hopefully open up a hole for me to achieve my intention of getting the football into the end zone. And then the the ends is actually getting there, right? Scoring the points, the actual. But, but that's the intention, you know. The means is sort of in between, 
is like the actual act itself, it's action. And then the ends is unknown, right? The outcome, you don't know if you're going to achieve the ends. And every time you encounter the chaos, right? The guy, guy doesn't throw the block correctly and you get tackled too early. Well, then you have to adapt, right? Maybe you need to do a spin move or you need to, you need to do something to deal with the chaos, right? That you're, the order of your plan, I love the Mike Tyson quote, right? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Like once you encounter that chaos, you have to adapt to it and map it, right? You want to incorporate it into the known and then reposition yourself to deal with the next unknown configuration that you're going to encounter. So it's um, it's very universal, I think, in its scope and it's also, as you said too, later in the book, Peterson does go into the the neurobiology and whatnot. And there are arguments that, you know, the left hemisphere of the brain is adapted to deal with order, right? It's much more uh, reductionist, r- rationalistic. It's It can, looks at things, uh, it, it atomizes things, um, dealing with things as individual components rather than looking at the whole picture. Whereas the right hemisphere is, you know, typically much more associated with creativity and artistic pursuits and, um, you know, spirituality and whatnot that is kind of like, it's taking this holistic view on the world. And so these two, uh, hemispheres of the brain sort of operate, uh, in tandem to deal with this order and chaos nature of the world. And myth, what is myth doing? Myth is sort of like describing that interplay, right? That whether it's a psychological interplay or it's the physical interplay or this, you know, the, the broader macro historical interplay of all of these actors, (laughs) uh, interacting across time. Like what is, what have been the consequences of that action? What can we abstract from that? Um, obviously one of the most popular mythologies is the hero's journey. I think there are arguments to be made in this book and others that Christ is almost like the meta hero. It's like he is, we've abstracted from all the hero stories, the essence of what makes them all heroic. And that is Christ. Um, so it's this, it's not just fairy tales and make believe for entertainment purposes, or it's not primitive people you know, trying to explain away in some supernatural way things that they don't understand. It's 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 describing the human operating system. It's like looking at the software that we run, right? This late latent cultural programming or something that we all inherit. We can barely articulate because it's so latent, right? It's like we just we take it for granted, right? We're the fish swimming in water. Um, and I think this book is one of the best at opening people's eyes to the reality of all of these things. Um, and I hope this has been a pretty good intro. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? This book also gets into alchemy later, which I think is super interesting. It's like one of my favorite things in the book towards the end, which we really didn't talk about yet. But uh, anything else we should kind of highlight in this introduction? Yeah, well, I think just to just to... Uh, emphasize the the part about the neurochemistry 
here. It's it's the part about the book that I'll, I'll be honest. I understand it the least, or at least uh-huh. I'm I'm uh, I believe <laughs> Jordan Peterson at his at his uh-huh. word and his evidence here. I I would not understand the sources he's referencing personally, uh-huh. but it's the most important part of the book for anyone who who doubts that that this stuff isn't grounded in in uh-huh. reality. Here, uh-huh. I think because because all of these other parts the the mythological bits and and even the relating to to everyday experience i think people can relate to this stuff and and even dig into it and understand it but when there is an actual basis in the the neuropsychological side to it then it really grounds uh, the book and and it's it's one of the three levels of of analysis uh, essentially from from the the second chapter titled three levels of analysis but the yeah. the normal life the the neuropsychological function and the mythological representation are the three and for for me it's the the mythological side to it that that you know, I I deep dived into and and where a good companion uh to to this book by the way just like a, a side here is that is the history of religious ideas by Marte Eliade oh, it's yes a, yeah yeah huge huge well it's it's one of the the most cited sources uh, in, mm-hmm. in this book so it's it's sort of the the companion uh, a natural companion here but yeah I, I i think basically on the the high level it's it's as an introduction it's this understanding of the concepts of order and chaos and that it's this interplay and i guess just to to tie off the hell aspect reference earlier <laughs> it's that when the chaos is unbearable, when it's not uh, adaptable, yeah. you go into the mythological hell uh-huh. and how to get out of that uh-huh. is is the tale of redemption uh-huh. and the way that humanity can be resilient and as individuals we can be resilient. And so there's a lot of hope here. There's a lot of darkness, but a lot of hope. Uh-huh. The darkness you have to face it and and this is something else that dr peterson says too is 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 facing the the darkness i'm not going to get exactly right what he said but it it's so important to understand it that that every human being is is capable of of evil yes but then you stare that in the face and understand that about yourself and and maybe that's something you can you can actually avoid and so the the hopefulness here the hopefulness in this book is that what what I hope out of out of talking about this book is that that people who who listen to this hear that this book has has something unique about the world because I I believe this is a is a a truly unique book what what it's encapsulating is 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 something unique and it's hopeful because <laughs> by understanding this stuff we can become better and the alignment to praxeological thinking i hope really resonates with some people but it it is also different uh-huh. this, this is probably one of the biggest areas where where i differ from from knut as an example or, or any of the other big kind of austrian thinkers uh-huh. here. So i i didn't come into this space from that angle uh-huh. i came from this angle of uh-huh. the the maps of meaning from the mythological side and 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 really i i will also say that the the thing that got me into bitcoin in the first place was was that you talked about on Lex Friedman about Jordan Peterson and yeah. Max Me while yeah. talking about Bitcoin. And then, yeah. well, I knew I had to 
look into that a bit further. <laughs> Sailor series, rest is history. So, <laughs> so that's that. But yeah. <laughs> I love to hear that. No, and that's a great point too, that it gets, you get in from this book, uh, a deeper understanding of the nature of heaven and hell, right? It's not just being some metaphysical place you, your soul goes after you die, but um, as extensions of that order and chaos theme, right? And it also gets into the nature of good and evil, right? That we are, because we are capable of self-reflection and we're self-conscious, it gives us these tremendous capacities, right? To, to learn and propagate knowledge across generations, et cetera. But it also gives us this capacity for evil where if I know, if I can, I know something that will hurt me, right? Whether this is something physical, whether this is something emotional, psychological, I can now use that knowledge, just so the self-reflection of understanding what will hurt myself. And I can use that to intentionally hurt others. And that is one framing of evil, right? Is when you are self-consciously using that knowledge to actually hurt someone, right? Vindictively hurt someone. Um, there's another framing for the term evil, which he, he cites here, um, I think comes from Milton's Paradise Lost, that evil is the force which believes its knowledge is complete. So a lot okay. of, again, a big theme in this book is humility right that you are never there is always more unexplored territory always yeah. always 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 in every single domain you're never going to have the total the totalized map the totalized knowledge that is totalitarianism actually which leads us into the horrors of the 20th century right people that thought they had the final answer the final solution the, the, the whole thing figured out, all the territory has been explored. Here's how we're going to do it, right? The utopian vision inevitably leads to the most brutal atrocities that humanity has ever seen. And all of that is in this book, right? All of that, all of this theological, you know, historical, psychological, mythological information about ourselves and our relationship to the world is in this book, which is why I am very excited to be doing this series. I wanted to do this for a long time, actually, so I'm glad um, you spurred me to do it. Oh, that, that that's so awesome. And and yeah, I think this has been a, a perfect introduction here. And I'm, yeah, I'm thrilled to get to, to do this with you. So looking forward to uh, continuing this over, I don't even know how long we're, we're going to need for it to set its dense, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Considering we got through one sentence in chapter one, in hour one, this is probably going to be like a 5,000 hour series. <laughs> hey, perfect. And it's, it's a perfect parallel too as well. It was the same thing in the first episode of the, the biblical series. He made it through something like verse one of Genesis. That's right. Something like that. Yeah. Or was it chapter one or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. He, tried, he was planning to do the whole Bible in something like 12, 12 lectures or something. And yeah. <laughs> Quite make it so. It's, uh, some yeah. foreshadowing there. But so yeah. we have our, we have our work cut out for us, um, Luke. Very excited to do this. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Yes, thank you. So so on Twitter, I'm still somewhat confusingly BTC Sudofin is my Twitter handle or or X. That's the the main place to find me. And and I make the Freedom Footprint show with Knut's von Holm. This is my 
attempt at contributing to the the Bitcoin community, uh, facilitating philosophical discussions. We we had we had you on just recently, and uh, yeah, it's uh, trying to do something a little bit uh, a little bit different and uh, have conversations like this from a slightly different side. So that's that's where you can find me, Freedom Footprint Show, and BTC Pseudofin. Awesome. That's me. Well, thanks again, and I look forward to episode two. Likewise. Thanks, Robert.